ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, we have a we have a first timer today. Actually, we have first timers, I believe, all week. It's very exciting. Um, and uh, but it may be a first time on the Remnant. But he is an old friend, known him from around town for a very long time. He has always uh, shamed me sartorially, including now, for he is wearing a tie for a podcast, um, which I actually expect nothing less. And I actually probably will win the office pool on this. Um, so my friend uh, from the Washington Examiner and I guess Vanity Fair these days, right? Is that a thing? Uh, I write for them on occasion. That's correct. As like a contributor? Uh, At, uh, yes, I, I, have, I, I have the wonderful title, and our business titles are everything, right? It's not even what you write. What's your title? I'm a contributing writer at Vanity Fair. Um, Very It's a platform exciting. I enjoy. The editors are great. And, that uh, comes so with one complimentary mimosa, I understand. Anyway, yes. uh, we have uh, David Drucker of The Examiner. What's your title over The Examiner? Just a senior correspondent. Okay. And you have your first, you have a new book, first book. Very Both. exciting. Um, I've been reading it this morning and last night. Um, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. David Drucker, welcome to The Remnant. Great to be here, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I normally, as longtime listeners know, I normally ask when people have a book on, I ask them my favorite question to get on a book tour, which is, what's your book about? But you kind of gave up the story in the title. So, uh, instead, why don't you give me a sort of, what is like the major through line? What is the, what is the theme to the pudding as it were? So the deal is this, um, with the book and, and sort of from its inception, there are so many books that dissect the Trump presidency and the Trump era in its infancy. What happened? Who was telling the truth about what? Here's the latest thing that we didn't know that happened that would have made our head spin and still makes our head spin. And they're all great. Uh, most of them are great. A lot of them are really interesting. I mean, I'm a news consumer just like anybody else in some, some ways. But I wanted to tell the story of what comes next. I wanted to look at Donald Trump's impact on the Republican Party through the prism of what the 2024 primary could look like. And in the reporting of the book, you know, what I really discovered is that even if for some people in their perfect world, they could throw Trump overboard and get rid of him. He has impacted the party such that his impact would last. And I really feel like there has been a generational shift uh, between the Reagan era and now the Trump era, at least in Republican politics. And then I take a look at all of these possible futures, looking at potential 2024 contenders, a bunch of Republicans that want to run for president, that want to be president and 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 how they have internalized and interpreted Trump's impact on the party, their voters, and what that means they have to do if they want to win a primary in 24. Okay, so um, I'm going to leave it to you from time to time to say, well, as I argue in my book, and I'm going to, because as we talked about beforehand, the problem with the, it's it's a great book so far. I mean, I'm I'm sort of diving through it, but um the problem with a book like this is that it is almost impossible to avoid rank punditry, 
while talking about the book, because what the book is, is sort of it's high level punditry in a way. And I don't mean that as, you know, as in any way as a derogatory thing, but it's like it's it's political coverage. And, you know, and so I'll ask the same questions that I probably ask you if you didn't have a book in some ways, um, probably but more about GOP stuff than normal. If I sound like I'm rambling, it's because I'm I'm rambling. Um, so first question off the top of my head. Who of the current field of people that we all think are obviously thinking about it would not run if Trump announced? And why? Well, that is a very good question. There's only really, let, let me answer the question this way. Interestingly enough, and I'll sort of back into it here like a politician might. Um, interestingly enough, there are, a lot of Republicans interested in running that won't say they won't run if Trump runs. And I think there are two things going on here. One, they really want to run for president. And they want to be president. And when you want that, you cannot act like you have so little confidence in your ability to lead that you're willing to back down for somebody else. Right. So I recently interviewed Mike Pompeo for my podcast, which is a companion to my book and therefore aptly titled In Trump's Shadow. And I said to him, look, I know you're not going to tell me today if you're running. But I said, if Trump runs, does that mean you won't? And he would not say that. I have even, through talking to allies of Mike Pence that knows how Mike Pence thinks these days, have been told that Mike Pence doesn't have any interest necessarily in backing down and not running if Trump runs. Now, let, let's put aside for a minute the horse race analysis and, well, this one could never beat Trump. Maybe he could never beat anybody. A lot of Republicans that were patiently or not so patiently eyeing 2024 are making plans to run and don't have any interest or plans to slow down a campaign just because Trump gets in. And the only one who has said so, um, and I wonder if she regrets it now, is Nikki Haley. You know, she got crosswise with Trump after she <laughs> spilled her guts to Tim Alberta in that Politico magazine piece about how Trump handled the post-election period. And then in trying to find her way back to into the good graces of the Republican base, said, well, if, you know, of course, if Trump runs, I'm, I'm not going to run. And, you know, the way voters interpret that is, well, clearly you don't, your, your ego isn't big enough to be president. And it's funny about that. We all hate politicians' egos. But if it's not sufficiently large enough, then we don't want to elect them. And I, I don't think there's actually anybody who necessarily won't run if Trump runs. I think it actually comes down to, is he still as strong as he used to be? Is he still as vigorous as he used to be? Do I really think he's going to see this thing through? Because clearly there are some that will make the calculation, all right, I'm just, I'm not going to do this. But there are others that I think that may surprise people. That will do it. And they'll try and run a campaign that doesn't necessarily target Trump, but just says, Trump is great, but I think we need a leader for today, not yesterday. Yeah, I mean, so there's, I mean, there, there strikes me is that there are a bunch of problems with, you know, like for Pompeo, it'd be very hard for him to run against Trump. I could see it being more like Pompeo picking, Trump picking Pompeo as a VP kind of guy. Um, but and the same thing is true for DeSantis. I think it would be hard. I mean, I'm not saying they wouldn't do it either. I'm just saying it, it's, you can see how difficult it would be to be, 
the heir apparent of the Trump lane when Trump won't get out of the lane. Um, but like one of the biggest complicating things here is that normally a, a one-term president is considered fairly or not a failed president, right? Maybe not politically, maybe not for history, the history books, but, um, I mean, it's maybe not policy wise, but, but just sort of politically they're considered a failed, you know, president. And, um, and so normally if, I mean, that I can't remember the last time someone had been president and then ran again, right? It had to be a 19th century thing or no, it was a TR, I guess, right? Something like that. No, not TR. Um, anyway, my point is, is that you would have people normally what you would say is you had your shot, right? And you couldn't do it. We need to move on. We need a fresh face. But because Trump claims that the election was stolen, that argument becomes much more problematic, right? Because you can say, no, actually I won. Um, and then you have to get a president, you have to get someone like Pompeo or DeSantis to say, well, if you won, you say you're a fighter and you say you always fight. How come you didn't fight enough to save <laughs> your own presidency? And it just, it's becomes so much harder to game out than like the politics we grew up in because there's so much craziness sort of baked into the, the game theory. Um, anyway, so you responded to that however you like, but also like you, you said something enticing. You said um, you're familiar with how uh, Mike Pence sees things. How does Mike Pence see things? Well, I think, I think what Mike Pence thinks and what Mike Pence says are two different things, right? So I, I think that, that um, <laughs> I think that Mike Pence every once in a while likes to push back against the ongoing criticism he gets from Trump for refusing to um, discard the Constitution and throw an election. Um, internally, Mike Pence wouldn't say no to being selected vice president again. <laughs> Internally, Mike Pence has not concluded that he will not run just because Donald Trump does run. And I think what Mike Pence wants to do is try and use the relationships that he has across the party and the goodwill he had sort of collected absent what happened in the post-election period and use that to build support for a presidential campaign very slowly. But I think the, the larger if issue, issue here, Jonah, is twofold, and this also relates to Pence. And one of the things that I feel like I learned from reporting in Trump's shadow is that um, Anybody who runs for president in 2024 on the Republican side that has a chance to win the nomination is, and they're going to do this, but I think they need to do this. They are going to present themselves as the heir to Trump's legacy, at least from a policy perspective, if not from an attitudinal perspective. And one of the most important things they can do to be successful in that primary is to find their own authentic way of displaying that attitude, that attitude that Trump perfected and used to his advantage on the Republican side. Meaning, they will fight everybody, no matter what, no matter who. I mean, you know, as we're recording, right? Trump's 
put out some statement uh, speaking ill of Colin Powell, the former Secretary of State, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, uh, trailblazer in a, in American life, let alone American politics. And who speaks ill of the dead? Especially a great man. And look, anybody in political life, in American life at a high level, is not a a person without flaws. They're not imperfect. They're not perfect. But who speaks ill of the dead even when somebody is particularly imperfect? Like normally people don't do it, and Trump just does that. And you you and I look at that and we kind of like roll our eyes and go, what the hell is this guy doing? But this is why he was so successful in the party and continues to be successful in the party. And so you're going to have a group of Republican candidates that are going to try and find their own way of channeling that and showing that they are that. And maybe they won't speak ill of somebody like Colin Powell after he passes, but they will find a way or try to find a way to do it in their own way. And that's one of the things Republican voters are looking for even more than some of these, you know, policy issues that you're not supposed to cross, um, you know, except for issues like abortion and gun control. So, I mean, let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, I, I because like, I, I hear what you're saying for the most part, you know, and I agree with it for the most part, like Ron DeSantis has figured out his, his frequency, like his tone about how to be anti-media, anti-left-wing COVID hysteria. He's a culture um, warrior. Yeah. While at the same time, being a responsible governor as he sees it, right? I mean, there's, he's found a sweet spot for that kind of thing. Um, in part because he's found, he's, he's lucky to have really good enemies politically. But DeSantis is, I mean, like, the statement that, that Powell put out, I mean, that, that, that Trump put out about Powell, which is both cold-hearted, uh, ungracious, but also incredibly whiny. You know, he has this line in there where he says, you know, maybe they'll, they'll treat me, the fake news will treat me like that when I die. Cause you can just tell he, he doesn't like the idea of people being praised that he doesn't like. But, um, like that's a level of, to use a term from social science, dickishness, um, that I don't think other people can do. Right. I, I don't think. Right. And that's part of their problem is voters will allow and accept things from Trump, even Republican, hardcore Republican voters, conservative, grassroots conservatives, that, and we saw this in 2016 when Marco Rubio tried it on for size, that they will not accept, and yet they still want proof that that you're willing to go to the mat, that you're not going to really, you know, look, in the era, Jonah, that we grew up in, you know, especially if you fashion yourself a president and not just a bomb thrower, you know, you didn't respond to every single reporter who wrote something negative. You didn't respond to you, you responded in the heat of a campaign to your opponent or you attacked your opponent, but there was language you wouldn't use. There was, there were things you wouldn't do. And, and voters didn't want you to do that. Um, one of the reasons Trump has worked so well for the Republican base is he channels their angst and contempt. He shares it. And so they feel like they have a connection with him. But you're right. And this is really a, a conundrum for the Republicans that want to follow him. Even if they try to, even if they ape Trump, voters will say, dude, dude you're not Trump. What are you doing? But yet, if they don't find a way to communicate that they're willing to take on all comers, that there are really no rules, 
And voters will say, you're not really a fighter, and I want a fighter. And even, look, when I interviewed Trump at Mar-a-Lago, and I asked him, what was the biggest impact you had on the party? And he kind of looked at me. I said, I, I want to know, what, what do you think? I said, a lot of people have opinions about uh, how you changed the party or, or made it better or worse. I said, but what, what do you think you did? And, you know, he could have ticked off a whole number of things, right? He could have said trade or the Abraham Accords or, I don't know, anything Trump says on any given day. He said, I taught them how to fight. And then he tells me, you know, in 2012, Mitt Romney just concedes. He's like, it was close. What did he concede for? He didn't, he didn't tell me, I think Mitt Romney won, but he said, I wouldn't have, he shouldn't have conceded. He said, I taught them how to fight. So that's how Trump thinks he impacted the party. That's how his voters, a lot of Republican voters, think he impacted the party. And that's really the takeaway that so many of these Republicans that want to succeed him atop the party, that's been their takeaway. So, all right. So, I mean, I know you're not a political scientist or anything like that, but like how much we talk about this base as if it's this coherent, and I do it all the time. I'm not, this is not a criticism, uh, but and about what the base wants, what the base w needs, and all that kind of stuff. And the base craves this pugnaciousness, to be, to be polite about it. Um, is it the same base that we had 10 years ago? Or is the base of the Republican Party, it's certainly differently psychologically oriented or politically oriented. Um, but is it different actual people than it was? Well, to some degree, I, I mean, it's a I mean, really died, interesting. Yeah, but I mean, like, yeah. it feels like we've replaced a different, we replaced one Republican base with another. And I'm trying to figure out if it, we replaced their thinking or we actually replaced the people. Well, I think it's, look, I think it's a little of both. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the Republican base today is, I mean, the Republican Party today, right, is more working class and less suburban. Now, the suburban aspect of it is in flux and they'll go back and forth as we may, may find out in Virginia late, uh, or early next month. But um, it, it's definitely more working class. The, the, it's also, um, you know, I asked this question, I, great way to answer this question, which is sort of an aside here, but I think it's related. Um, back when Nikki Haley was still governor of South Carolina and she was embarking on this effort to remove the Confederate flag from the statehouse grounds. Um, and, and, you know, as we know now, she ultimately did it and, and it was a pretty big deal. I, I called down to South Carolina and I said, I said, I know this is a stupid question, but I said, South Carolina is an overwhelmingly Republican state. And Nikki Haley, the governor, is trying to take down the Confederate flag, which was really an, you know, a, an old evil emblem of what the Democratic Party used to be eons ago. I said, but it was never a Republican symbol. What is the big deal? And this Republican operative tells me in South Carolina, he's like, look, our base is a lot of former Democrats that culturally the Confederate flag has been a part of their life. And we have subsumed, we have taken in, they have become by choice because of mainly because of cultural issues, not because of issues of national security or fiscal issues. They have become Republicans. So this this symbol was important to them when they were Democrats, and it's still important to them, even though they're now Republicans. So the base is somewhat different in that because of the cultural divide, the Republican base is now full of former Democrats. And so it's somewhat different. Yeah, I, I hear that. But there's, there, I mean, I, I get the I get the cultural point for sure. I mean, but in fairness. That transition from Demo of Democrats to Republicans 
had happened. You know, so that started, you know, that started with Nixon's Southern strategy. I mean, these were, these were, a lot of these people would be the children of those people, right? I mean, these are a lot of these people, a lot of, a lot, there are a lot, there's a whole class, two classes maybe of, of Republican politicians in the South that were never Democrats. I mean, the ones who switched from the Democratic Party was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, not the, the 2010s so much. And, and it doesn't explain like why the, Minnesota GOP, you know, like who is, who is the, yeah, because the Minnesota GOP is now full of, of, of working class voters on the iron range. And this was a heavily democratic blue area because of union politics, again, because of fiscal and because of fiscal issues. Look, these are not, you know, when I was growing up in the Reagan era and you and I are roughly the same age, um, you know, Republicans, Right. Republican voters were for smaller, less intrusive government, and they were much more concerned about debts and deficits. And the Republican base today, they they are concerned about cultural overreach and control. They're you know, they're not they don't want anybody messing with the Second Amendment. But if the government shows up in their community and I kind of write this in the book and says, look, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. They're not necessarily opposed to that. This is not... Unless they're there to help you get vaccinated. Well, and there is that. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's just a different, you know, we're in a different, a little bit of a different era. And I just think Trump's election in 2016 and what he was able to do in attracting voters into Republican primaries in that primary sort of cemented an evolution that had long been underway. But I think it just cemented it. Um, all right, so let's get back to the, the primary stuff or the 2024 stuff. Um, right now, uh, let's get back to Pence for two seconds. Do you think Pence could act like, like, let's say Trump doesn't run. Um, I don't know if he still believes this, but our, our friend Chris Starwalt was arguing a couple months ago, at least that Pence was actually well positioned to scoop up various slices of the GOP electorate and could actually, um, pull it out. How situ how well situated do you think he is to actually get the nomination? How, what would that look like? Well, what I would say is I think Pence is underestimated, right? So I think I think too many I, I hate look, this is not good for rank punditry, but I hate to make predictions too far out and not just because of what happened in 2016. You know, I could look at 2016 and say, you know, Ted Cruz started out with three percent and he was the runner up. When you look far out, People with low poll numbers or people with issues only look like they have issues and low poll numbers. But what I would say is, is, is Pence has a lot of relationships and is probably just acceptable enough to various factions within the party that in a multi-candidate primary, he has as good an opportunity to rise as almost anybody else. Now, I, he has myriad challenges and faults or, you know, this this particular quality about his personality is maybe not fit for the, the era that we're in, or I could go into all of that. But, but when it comes to grassroots conservatives or suburban conservatives or elements of the base that care about social issues, um, or the fact that he was so intricately intertwined with Trump while Trump was president. There are various ways I could see where Mike Pence could stitch together um, a successful campaign. And, and the other thing is he's got name ID. 
So he starts out, people know who he is. And he also, I don't know if he will ever want to do this, and it may never be useful for him to do this. But to the extent, but you know, for four years, and, and I, I write about this in In Trump's Shadow, he was, he, he, it's like he, he went on a daily basis almost give Oscar worthy performances, um, you know, idolatry, elevating Trump and his magnificence. But when push came to shove on what Trump still considers the biggest issue of his presidency, his desire to overturn the election, Pence wouldn't budge. And Pence could play that up if he wanted to, just to say, I know how to lead and I'm willing to lead even when it threatens my career. Have you read Peril, the Woodward book? Not yet. Yeah, I haven't. But I'm familiar. Um, I'm familiar with the reporting on Pence. And my reporting on Pence from that period, while I don't have all of the episodes that they have, is just different. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about, because that was my impression. And, you know, the rule in Washington, um, going back a very long way, is if you cooperate with Woodward, you come out pretty good in his books. And if you don't cooperate with Woodward, you don't. And (laughs) when I heard these stories about him calling, you know, Dan Quayle, and trying to find a way to, you know, steal the election. The way I read that was, okay, so Pence didn't really cooperate with Woodward, and he's taking this example that, so he clearly talked, so Woodward clearly talked to Quayle. Quayle, not surprisingly, I mean, I I like Quayle, I'm not criticizing him, but Quayle told a version of the story that made Quayle look good. I mean, politicians, even ex-politicians will do that. And, and, And Woodward spins a story about Pence making sure, doing his due diligence, making sure that he can't do what Trump is asking into Pence looking for a way to do what Trump was asking. And that was my read on it. Is what, what's your, what was your take on all that? Well, look, what, what my reporting shows is that Mike Pence knew from the beginning that it was a, it was preposterous that the founders had somehow um, installed a backdoor into the Constitution that allowed the vice president to decide the winner, e- e- you know, either by throwing out state certified electors, deciding they should go to the House, go back to the state legislature. Particularly when the vice president, remember, the originally the vice president was the runner up. <laughs> so I mean, it'd be like incredibly stupid to have the vice president. Well, Jonah, <laughs> I, I mean, this just drives me batty, right? So okay, look, we can argue constitutional law. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. There are people better at this than I am. But the idea that the founding fathers, the founders, right? When I was young, we called them the founding fathers, and now I have to call them the founders. I don't care. That they said to themselves, all right, we're not going to tell anybody about this. But the vice president actually gets to decide who, who the president is. We'll just see how long it takes them to figure out. Maybe it'll be 240 years. I don't know. But it's there. This is stupid. Right. But as, as Pence chief of staff Mark Short told me in an interview, and this was after uh, Trump left the White House, No limited government conservative, at the very least, believes this. And Pence certainly didn't believe it. And that he told Donald Trump in several meetings that weren't reported on because it didn't devolve into a shouting match this multiple times. But that he wanted to do his due diligence in part so that if a future president was tempted into this, a paper trail would already exist, being that now apparently it's something people talk about that you can't do it, right? It, nobody ever bothered with this because nobody ever 
thought it was real. So you, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I don't it's know not how, a how thing. else to put I mean, this I, I, right. I, I, it's I, like, it's, yeah. it's not a thing. You don't put propane into your car. You put unleaded gasoline. But I guess if everybody thinks you're supposed to put in propane, now you got to put a warning label that says 87 unleaded only, right? So they wanted a paper trail. And that was part of the vice president's thinking. And so he had Gregory Jacob, his attorney in the vice president's office, research this extensively, not to get out of it, not to find a way to do what Trump wanted, but to make clear to everybody that it's ridiculous and you should never bother with this ever again. Now, that's my reporting. I feel confident in it or it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be in the book. Um, obviously, there's different reporting on what Pence's intentions were, but I, I like what I wrote. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I buy your version of it. I mean, I, that just makes more sense to me. I, you know, I mean, in fairness, I, I can also imagine that politically, for a guy who's thinking about running for president one day, making sure you've buttoned down this argument in every conceivable way is a smart thing to do, even if you've got these other complementary motives about you know, uh, you know, this looking to history and, and closing down the precedent often, you know, there are multiple reasons why people do things, but I, your version makes much more. I just thought that this was a bit of payback from Woodward against, against, uh, Pence. That's the way and I who, who knows? Look, it wasn't the first time that Mike Pence had talked to Dan Quayle about being vice president because Dan Quayle's from Indiana. He was vice president though long ago. So he's somebody he knew, um, and he had, you know, he asked Dan Quayle's advice when he was picked by Trump. How should I handle it? What should I do? And, you know, Dan Quayle told him, bring your own team in. You know, he recounted to him that when George Herbert Walker Bush picked him for vice president, he he relied on the then vice president's uh, team. And he didn't have anybody that was with him in that campaign that cared about him, that was looking out for him, that understood him. And he told Pence bring your own people. And so Pence listened. He brought, and there, you know, the thing about Pence, by the way, Jonah, which I just really enjoy, this is why I enjoy covering him in part, is he's got a team of sharks. You know, Pence isn't that as nice a guy as he he portends, all right? I mean, there's a reason why he he rose to, to vice president, which is not nothing. But he brought with him his team of sharks because, because, because of Dan, in part because of Dan Quayle's advice. So he had talked to Dan Quayle before, and I think you're right to point out, and I did not mean to leave out, there were, also, there were multiple motives for trying to get this thing nailed down. And part of that was to show, I didn't ignore this. Right. All I right, took it see, seriously. I looked into it. Yeah. And I think it helped, but also, you know, he would be in these meetings with Trump, with other people, and they're arguing, you can do this. And I think he wanted to say, look, fine, I, like, look, man. Right, so as you detail in, in in the book, you talk to the full gamut of conservatives, Republicans, pro-Trumpers, anti-Trumpers, never-Trumpers, all the rest. Um, and I think you're 110% right that the vice president can't unilaterally anoint his successor, regardless of what the, electoral, what the popular <laughs> vote was um, or what the electoral votes were. Um, but you say... You said something, you said no traditional small government conservative believes this. And uh, I would like to believe that that is true. Um, but we now know that there are people like Eastman and others who I think would still claim to be small government conservatives 
who do believe this stuff. And, and so it, it raises the question, because since you talk to all these people, how many, I, I, this, is a comment, this is something we talk about a lot on this, on this podcast, is how many of the people who are all in for Trump, in your experience, I'm talking about politicians, serious political activists, um, uh, even journalists, who publicly are 100% in for, for Trump, how many of them actually believe that the stuff that they're saying and how many of them are saying it for uh, a, a variety of mod motives, from the cynical to the expedient to the we have to do this for the greater good kind of thing? Yeah, really great question. And it, it would surprise you. I just wanted to say one thing. It was Mark Short who told me, quote, no small government conservative uh -huh. oh, okay. would, cool. um, which I'm. There's my analysis is all over the book, but that particular line came from Mark Short to me. Um, I have talked to several Republican operatives who, at least now, maybe always, have been in the Trump wing of the party or Trump supporting, who have told me Trump lost and what he was trying to do was ridiculous but they still support trump they still want to be in they still support trump's agenda and they have various reasons for why they won't say <laughs> that i support trump and i support his agenda but trying to overturn the election was ridiculous but I've been even surprised. Look, there have been some Republican operatives I've talked to that have been in that wing all along or that matriculated to the fore through Republican politics only because Trump won. Who have said, look, you know, off the record, this stolen election stuff is ridiculous and, you know, a total disgrace. But for obvious reasons, I'm n never going to say that publicly. Right. But I don't, I don't just mean the stolen election thing. I mean, that puts a fine point on it to be sure. But like, I know stories, I'll, I'll keep them a little vague because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but you know, I know stories of the people who were with, uh, Trump when they were trying to explain to him that, you know, you can't accept the Klan's endorsement, right. Or David Duke's endorsement and that kind of stuff. And in the stories in, about him behind the scenes are that a lot of these people were, you know, very blunt with Trump about various things, you know, maybe not Jason Miller or Steve Miller or, you know, the Steve Miller band or whatever, but like, <laughs> you know, like, but even, even people like Corey Lewandowski would be blunt behind the scenes with Trump about what you can and can't do and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then you hear about other people who, um, seem to have truly drank the Kool-Aid. And if you had said five years ago that John Eastman would be this guy proposing this conspiracy theory about how the vice president could steal the election, or I shouldn't even say conspiracy theory, proposing a conspiracy, right? A straight up conspiracy about how to steal the election. Um, or if you just look at like the way places like the Claremont Institute have gone, or, you know, a lot of, or, or you know, the, the buffoonery of Michael Anton these days. There are a lot of people who seem to have had something, some switch flip and changed. And it's very hard to figure out who's doing it for the grift or who's doing it for the popular front and who's doing it 
for profoundly serious, you know, they, they, they actually do believe that, you know, that Trump is some sort of redeemer figure and that Jesus is guiding his hand and that, you know, that painting and all that kind of stuff. Look, I, I think my answer is the same, but now that I understand your question better, better, but I, I just think there's a mixture of sort of all three, right? So I, I mean, there are some, there's some Republicans I talk to that just, you know, that think he's the second political coming. Uh, and there are some I talk to that, that, you know, totally disagree with him, with how he conducts himself, have some issues with some of his policies, would prefer he was never elected, but it's a two party system and they are Republicans and therefore they are going to support him or stick with him or not be a part of a Republican civil war. Um, I'd say interesting to me, what's, I, I don't know if it's interesting, but, but look, I talked to a lot of Republicans, both operatives and politicians who are just simply pragmatic about it. Okay. That they are in Republican politics because they think ultimately Republican policies and, and furthering the Republican party, not just does their, you know, their career and their aspirations good. And we're all human and that's a part of it, but that it, it, it is good for the country ultimately especially when the only other major real option is a Democratic Party that they believe moved very far to the left, even though long before it moved very far to the left, they had believed it moved irredeemably too far to the left. <laughs> you know, I, I've been hearing the same thing since Bill Clinton was president, only now people say, well, look, back then it wasn't so bad, except right. everybody thought it was so bad then too. Also, every four years, it's the most important election in our lifetime. Yes, and we're all the country. <laughs> and I, I always ask, I'm like, if the country is so screwed up that one election of which somebody can only serve four years guaranteed is going to make or break the country, we're already screwed. <laughs> right. No, exactly. If we're one election away from apocalypse, then the country's already over because Jonah, I, elections I aren't supposed to, to people, decide these things. Yeah. We have an election every two years. Politics is not static. The country is at times in trouble, at times not in trouble. It, it, nothing's hopeless, but separate issue. So look, I, I speak to just Republicans who are pragmatic. I mean, look, I've spoke to so many Republican elected officials who say, look, do I want to deal with Trump? No. Do I wish he was, do I wish I had another Republican? Yes. I supported so-and-so. Um, but I don't because that's not what the voters wanted. So I can either tell my voters they're all ass. If I'm allowed to say that on the remnant, we might bleep it, you know, okay. it's all right. People Which get it from fine. context. <laughs> yeah. So it's almost better if I just bleep. Uh, I can either tell my voters that I don't like them, that they're dumb and stupid. Or I can just work my way through this because Trump won't be here forever. And I hear that from Republicans on Capitol Hill. I hear it from Republican operatives who say, look, I didn't want Trump to be president. I don't approve of this, but this is what the voters have given us. And I don't think it's going to make the country any better if I throw in with the Democrats. And I think the way, you know, Joe Biden has been handling his presidency so far, not so much with Afghanistan, which is its own debacle, but just, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill and this three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill. I think they're saying, you know, see, it's I'm not for this stuff. So why is it going to help the country if I make sure Democrats stay in control of Congress, even when they're confronted with the issue of the stolen election and democracy and all of that stuff? I don't think anybody, I don't think Republicans that do this for a living or that are elected believe that our democracy is in peril. Some of them do. We know who they are. They talk very publicly about it. I'm not criticizing them. But most Republicans I talk to, 
would be happy as clams if Trump would just go away. But they don't see what good it is going to do anybody, them, the party, the country. And they don't think in particular Trump will listen if they go, Trump should go away. Right. Yeah. No, I, I get that. And that's, that, that's, that's a perfectly fine answer. I mean, um, the. Yeah. And I've, I, I personally think that one of the most disfiguring things to our politics is that normal presidents. The way people in our line of work, generally speaking, but also political activists, all the rest. Um, the way you change presidential behavior is one of you have two tools. You have sort of like a brake pedal and a gas pedal. You can criticize the president or you praise the president. And so you criticize the president when he does good things. And you praise the president, or you criticize the president when he does bad things, and you praise him when he does good things. But Trump is, because he's utterly immune to criticism, um, and in fact, doubles down on the bad behavior when you criticize him for it. And he is incredibly susceptible to flattery. You basically have an entire political class that only flatters him. And that creates a a huge problem because there is now the it creates the sense, particularly when you add in the sort of the cable television aspect to it and the talk radio aspect to it, the 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 perception that people get outside of the beltway is that all loyal, true, and good Republicans have no complaints about the guy. <laughs> when in reality, the people you're talking to are saying, gosh, I wish he wouldn't do this. He's his own worst enemy about that, or blah, 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 blah. But you can't say that publicly. And if you don't say it publicly, people get the impression that, no, 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 that that criticism only comes from the left. And that's traitorous to the cause. And that creates a really dysfunctional kind of groupthink environment. Like people were much more thoughtful and nuanced about Ronald Reagan than they're allowed to be about Donald Trump. And it's it creates this weird sort of dynamic that we've got. It really does. You know, it's it's ironic, number one, that a conservative movement whose highest ideal was being willing to criticize the Republican establishment and not just going along with the establishment and supporting backbench Republicans in Congress who would say no and vote against initiatives pushed by the establishment now will not will countenance no argument or opposition to the establishment. And I'm sorry, when you're president of the United States, you are the establishment of your party. But, you know, the other thing, and it's you, you sort of give me an opportunity to touch on, I think, a really important point, uh, I think, from in Trump's shadow, is that you know, Trump is a simple man, but a very complicated political figure. You know, more than anybody else I've covered, Trump is tr transparent as a person. He wants what he wants. He likes who he likes. He is happy with what makes him happy and doesn't like what he doesn't like. And he just says it. Um, but he is a complicated political figure. And, and I like to talk about it in this way. And it also helps explain why, despite being ousted after one term, which, as you had mentioned earlier, usually means you failed. Go away. Right. But what happened down and what happened down ballot, even though his 74 million votes were eclipsed by Joe Biden's 81 million votes? What happened for Republicans down ballot? Well, they gained 14 House seats, came five seats short of the majority, even though they lost control of the Senate. That was pretty much Trump's doing in Georgia, of which he basically admitted to me when I interviewed him. And he said, yeah, I mean, I guess I could have 
you know, told people to go vote, but <laughs> I was upset. And he says, I said, and I said, sir, I said, you know, just out of curiosity, I said, maybe the system needed to change. Maybe you were upset with the outcome, but shouldn't you have told Republicans this election matters, show up and vote? And he says, well, you know, I gave a couple of rallies, but maybe I didn't say it as strongly as you did. <laughs> like he knows exactly what he did. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they gained 14 House seats. They lose control of zero state legislatures on the cusp of redistricting. Uh, they don't have a problem with governor's mansions and they only lose these two seats in special elections that are in, in runoffs that are weird. And basically cause Trump told Republicans to stay home. So, right. If you're Kevin McCarthy, the king of wanting to make nice with Trump for both pragmatic and political reasons, in addition to whatever other reason you want to, um, pin on him, why should you tell Trump to get lost? You just won 14 seats because of this, when everybody said you were going to lose 14, because of the turnout and the enthusiasm that he helped generate. You flipped some border, you flipped at least one border county in Texas that's majority Hispanic that hadn't voted Republican in 100 years. So even though you still have horrible numbers as a party with African-Americans and Asians, your numbers with Hispanics went up a little bit and your numbers with non-white voters went up a little bit. You're winning, you're, you're increasing the party support in majority Hispanic counties where, you know, you'd think you're supposed to do horribly because of how Donald Trump at times talks about immigrants, particularly immigrants from Mexico. So, and if you look at Arizona, in Maricopa County, which Donald Trump has been obsessed with, you know, Donald Trump loses Maricopa County to Joe Biden and Martha McSally, the Senate nominee and incumbent loses to Mark Kelly in the Senate race. But, you know, every other Republican on the ballot, except for one down ballot in Maricopa was victorious on election day. So Republicans don't look at this as really a Trump problem per se. They look at this as a, as a quirk of Trump's personality and of the pandemic. And and even if you don't look at it as a quirk of the pandemic, and I'm not saying you should, if you're a Republican in the House and you look at across all of these districts what you think Trump's coattails meant to your ability to retake the majority, it doesn't occur to you that you should throw him overboard. And you certainly don't see voters itching to throw him overboard. This is not the same as the base turning its back on George Herbert Walker Bush in 1992. And, you know, obviously there was the Perot factor and all of that, and I don't want to overcomplicate it, but it's, it's just not the same. And that's why a lot of even just pragmatic Republicans who want to do, who only want to win, who plan on being in Washington long after Donald Trump is dead and buried, even if that means he lives to 125, which I guess is possible. Um, they look at this as a movement to harness the same way Democrats looked at the Obama turnout machine and movement as something to try and harness. It's just that Obama did not, he unified his party, and at least in 2008, the country, whereas Donald Trump has just been very divisive. So looking forward, you know, the, the argument, I mean, part of, part of the reason why, like Trump, I don't think mine is talking about losing the Senate for Republicans in Georgia is it signals that he's got this stranglehold hold over the 
party. You know, he, he doesn't command the majority of the party, but he commands enough of the party that if they don't show up, then people are screwed, you know, and are the party screwed. And, but at the same time, there's not a lot of evidence that he had great coattails, right? Um, you know, you listen to Ron Johnson, at least when he's on a secret camera, uh, you know, Trump lost Wisconsin, but, um, Ron Johnson won because Ron Johnson could hold on to 50,000 Republicans who voted against Trump. Um, and there's, you know, we all remember Steve Bannon's ridiculous effort to sort of primary Mitch McConnell and take the Senate with, with sort of MAGA Trumpista types and it failed miserably. So I guess the question is, what happens if, if Trump doesn't run or if he is somehow, you know, if he dies, if he's debilitated or whatever, um, do all of these Republicans, these pragmatists that you talk to, do they all of a sudden become more normal? Um, or is the party going to look, is, is, is the party going to look in Trump's image for the long term, even though so far his stuff doesn't transfer very well to other, his imitators tend not to do too well. So I, I, I think there are multiple ways this could play out, but I, I do want to say, I think there's a difference between his lack of coattails in 2016 and the coattails that he had at least in house races in 2020. So in 2016, when Ron Johnson was up for re-election, Ron Johnson outperformed Trump. Marco Rubio, up for re-election in Florida, outperformed Trump. But 2020, at least the way Republicans in the House look at it, he had coattails for them. And other than Georgia, Trump did not cost the Republicans too many Senate seats. Beyond what happened in Arizona, he did not in Georgia, it was its own special thing. That's their view of it. Um, I think that what you're going to find in the future is that Trump's impact on the party is what I like to say permanent for the time being. Politics is not static. <laughs> things always change. But, you know, for most of my lifetime, Every four years when there was a Republican primary, there was an open primary, but even if there wasn't, the Republican candidates for president ran around saying that I'm, I'm the next Ronald Reagan. I'm the true heir to Ronald Reagan. I'm the most like Ronald Reagan. Now, Trump, it's a little bit more difficult to do that because it carries with it some baggage. But to some degree or another, for the time being, particularly in 24, but I wouldn't be surprised in 28 and 32, depending. They're all going to run around and in some way, and some will be more overt about it and some will be subtle, saying, I'm the next Trump, I'm the heir to Trump, or I'm Trump without the Trump baggage. And one of the ways in which you will see this, number one, is the agenda. Even though Trump isn't always loyal to his own agenda or sometimes seem to undercut his own agenda, I think on issues of immigration, in terms of border security, on matters of trade, um, foreign policy, I think it's more depends on who the Republican nominee is. I think that's the one area where there's still sort of a push and pull between the Reagan wing and the Trump wing. Um, but immigration, trade on China in particular, and I think whoever was president was eventually going to have to change, uh, 
the American approach to China because China has been demanding that uh, by their actions. But all of these things, they're all going to say, I am going to be like Trump. And some will outright say it and some will say, I'm not going to be I'm going to be Trump, but without the Trump baggage he didn't like. And that's where his impact on the party is going to be particularly lasting. On the attitudinal stuff, it depends. I do think the same way they, you know, 10 years ago in a Republican primary may have fought over a particular policy, I'm going to be the most like this. They are going to compete attitudinally. I will fight. You'll hear that word a lot. And we kind of take the word fight for granted. Like, well, every campaign's a fight. But Republican voters have really internalized this idea that are you willing to fight? And, you know, I, I've been on the trail before and I've interviewed Republican voters and I've said, you know, do you have a problem? This was before Trump was banned from Twitter. Do, do you have a problem with Trump's tweets? I was like, no, I mean, that's that's the whole point. And yeah, he crosses the line, but see, he has no choice but to cross the line. And by crossing the line, he tells me he's really fighting. And so they're going to, the, the voters are going to want them to communicate that they are really fighting. And their challenge, and Trump, you know, insiders in Trump world have told me this, their challenge is going to be, don't try and imitate Trump. It won't work. Find your own way of doing it. And you better, you know, and then hope it works. Hope people like it. But yeah, but that's, I think, looking to the future. I mean, that's what the 24 race is going to be all about if Trump doesn't run. And that's where his impact is really going to be felt, um, at least in 24. But I could see a scenario where it lasts uh, beyond 24. Um, and again, the one area I'd say is not quite the case is on matters of foreign policy, even some of the Trumpier Republicans, let's say, some of them do not agree with how Trump handled Afghanistan or do not agree with how Trump interacted with NATO. Or they like how Trump interacts with China, but you know, decreasing the American military presence in the South Pacific is exactly the wrong way to go about it. So they're not going to do it exactly the way Trump would do it. Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, 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 I bristle, bristles the wrong word. I, 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 I want to take out my caveat stick um, <laughs> when you, um, uh, when you talk about the voters, because I think that there's, um, a bigger range among I mean, so part of my indictment of what the Trump era has done is that it has replaced among the most reliable and valuable voters, not people, right? I'm not talking about their souls, but the most reliable val and valuable voters in America, in Republican politics are basically white college educated suburbanites. Um, they show up, right? And, and, and some older people, but like uh, but the, the suburbanites, they show up, they can be counted on to vote. Um, we know where they are. They're easy to, to turn out, turn out the vote and they tend to be distributed in places that are election deciders in various important States. And if you can win the suburbs, you basically can win the presidency the way the electoral college works. And instead they've replaced a lot of those voters with, um, more rural, uh, less educated voters I'm not saying they're not wonderful people so many of them are better people than the suburbanites don't get me you know that's not my point but they tend to be distributed in, in places where republicans are going to win anyway and you know and there are a couple you know exempt exceptions to that pennsylvania is one you know maybe michigan is another you can go down a list but 
Um, and so the when you say the voters, I think you're absolutely right about the people who dominate the primaries. But I don't know that that's right in terms of what the median Republican general election voter wants. And this idea that fighting is its, is its own reward rather than like certain results is really problematic for our politics, right? And it's, it's a problem on both sides. This idea that it's, it doesn't matter what results you get so long as you're seen duking it out with the enemy um, leads to a lot of dysfunction. Yeah, 100%. And you're right. It may not work in a general election setting, but especially in this era, there is a focus on winning a primary and there is an, it's an open question about whether you need or should pivot center, right? It used to just be accepted. Well, you run right or left in the primary, and then you move to the center of the general election. That's just the way it is. But when you have, you know, when we have the tools of micro-targeting and data analytics, there's always some uh, young or old enterprising politician who says, what if I just make the base bigger? Right. Which is what, exactly what Obama did, right? Right. No and pivot. that's what Donald yeah. Trump decided to do. He just said, why can't my base be bigger? I think it's bigger. I'll just make it bigger. Um, and you're right that I generalize a lot, but it's just it's a way for me to try and make a coherent argument. But obviously, if you look at the Republican electorate, you've got your your committed base, as we think of a base. And then you've got the they show up just about as often as the base, but they're a little bit more pragmatic. And, I, you know, I've talked to some of these Republicans since the election who have said, well, I don't want the party to go back to the way it used to be, and I really like what Trump accomplished, and I want the next Republican president to do a lot of what Trump did, but it'd be nice if we could just get somebody new. I, I don't want to beat up on Trump. I don't like those, you know, if I turn on TV and I see people like Jonah Goldberg beating up on Trump, well, I don't want that. But I also think Trump should stay retired, right? And then you've got this other... You know, they're independent, but they lean right, but they don't really like combative politics. And they are in part why Trump didn't win a second term. Because these are people that, if you ask them about fiscal issues or national security policy, and even some social issues, though not they're not culture warriors, a lot of them would say generally in a focus group or a poll that they, you know, tend to support Republican candidates. But they could not stomach another four years of Trump's behavior and just the exhaustion and the level of it's like a four. It was like a four alarm fire every day. And, you know, they always lived through it. But after a while, you're like, what? It's like your fire alarm in your house. If it kept going off, eventually you'd be worn down. You just want to take it out. And that's what they did. And so you, you're right to point out the voters. It gets complicated. But I think it's if we look at a Republican primary and the way base voters can often, often be more dominant. Um, and interestingly, interestingly enough, if you've noticed, even in talking about this issue of fighting, which you're right, has problems for everything that's going on today that is not necessarily always good, we're not even talking about some Maginot line about this policy or another, even though, I, you know, look, you're not going to, you know, you're, if you're a Republican, you're not going to run on amnesty or, or, you know, letting China into the next WTO or whatever the case is. But it's really so attitudinal. The Maginot line is, are you willing to fight? Right. You know, the other things kind of are assumed, you know, you have to be pro-life on abortion issues. You, you have to support gun rights and the Second Amendment. 
So, you know, figuring they're all going to do that. So what are they fighting over? Fighting. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like the, um, the itchy and scratchy theme song from the Simpsons. They fight, <laughs> they fight, they fight, 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 fight. All right. So, uh, in the time we have left, if you had to guess, let's say Trump does not run. Right. Um, let's think about that world. Um, who are the people you think, I'm not asking you to predict. I'm just saying the most likely um, that if if present trends continued, you would be more surprised that they didn't run than if they did um, among the Republican field. Who are those people? Well, so it's a tough question for me to answer, although it's a fair question, only because everybody that I wrote about just about, I think, is either going to run or wants to run. You know, I featured in the book in particular Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio. They all want to run. Even Rubio. Rubio surprised me. I thought maybe he was done with the whole thing, but he wants to run. Um, they So th- those six want to run. And then I, I mentioned another eight in the opening chapter just to say, yes, I get it. I know. I know there are more people. Yeah, I was surprised. Like, I mean, Tom Cotton, I would have assumed, was on your definitely going to run list. Yeah. I mean, I know you mentioned him, but, you know. Yeah, no. The, he, I mean, Tom Cotton wants to run, is planning to run, is tr- is building towards a run. So, I mean, I could see a scenario where you have 14 candidates. Um, You know, I, I think, so I think it's hard for me to say who, I think it would surprise me if any of the six that I feature which includes Cotton, did not run it, it, in a scenario where Trump doesn't run. Like, I expect Pence, Pompeo, Haley, Cotton, Cruz to run. The one that, I, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did not run, is Rubio, I'm less convinced, is totally sold on a run, but I know he wants to do it. Yeah. Um, and so Nikki Haley, uh, Full disclosure, my wife worked for Nikki Haley for a long time. And I uh, I used to say, well, I, I still think it's true, but I used to say all the time, Nikki Haley and basically Scott Gottlieb were the only two prom, and, and it's not like Scott's running, going to run for president, but like Nikki Haley was the only sort of prominent national political figure who worked for the Trump administration and came out with a reputation enhanced, not just- correct not diminished, but enhanced. And then, um, and I think a big part of that had to do with the fact that she picked the right job, which was based in New York, which kept her out of a lot of the nonsense, but also she said she had really good political instincts and political timing, um, and could pick and choose the fights that she wanted to have in ways that people in the West wing couldn't. The thing that makes me sad is someone who still is, you know, fond of, of Haley as a person and thought she had incredible potential is how badly it seems she has read the post-Trump presidency, um, even though I think she was right to condemn January 6th, obviously. Um, You know, you write about her at great length. I read the stuff about her cultivating CPAC, which is a whole topic that depresses me greatly. But um, (laughs) what, um, you know, what are the biggest challenges that face her, do you think, um, if she decides to run? Well, I think one is that 
the way she was critical of Trump in the post-election period when she laid it all out on the line is that she was, it, it came off, and I think it was in, to some degree a personal critique that uh, he failed personally in the way he behaved. And, you know, there's just one thing that Trump and his loyalists cannot stand. It's a personal critique. And there's also the issue of whether or not, and this, you know, this has been an issue for quite some time in politics, but whether or not you're, you're flip-floppy. So prior to that, she had just managed to navigate Right. She would criticize Trump policies occasionally and say that she didn't agree with this or that, but she just did a great job of bobbing and weaving. She did it better than anybody else, and part for the reasons you mentioned, I think, but just very talented at that. Um, but to be as openly, bluntly critical of Trump post election and then look as though she was trying to get back into his circle of trust does not reflect well on her and could be used against her. You can't trust Nikki Haley because one minute she likes you and the next minute she doesn't like you. She's just trying to say what you want to hear. That's a challenge. And, you know, aside from that, um, I, I, look, and I, I could get a little like uh, just normal politics here and say that Nikki Haley is a great, has great communications instincts other than this debacle and tells a story as well as any politician I've heard when she's in a, when she's before a big room telling a story I and mean, it's like you're eating out of the palm of her hand, but I think she has to improve her ability to fill the room with a big speech. And, you know, the other thing I'd say, Jonah, and this is really simple and we don't pay attention to it too much, but, you know, on matters of trade and fiscal issues, generally she's still kind of an old school Reagan Republican. And that's kind of out of fashion these days. You know, she's a big, you know, it's all Republicans these days will say socialism, bad capitalism, good. But like Nikki Haley still believes and will talk about sort of the capitalism of the eighties and nineties versus the cultural capitalism of today, because socialism is bad. Um, and I wonder how that plays in a primary, you know, in the Midwest or in the South when a lot of Republicans are for capitalism, but they now believe that the government should, in effect, pick winners and losers so that there's a plant in, you know, somewhere in Wisconsin or Ohio or New Hampshire or whatever. That's, you know, or that you still believe that international trade is an unalloyed good. And, you know, her experience in South Carolina is exactly that. I told companies around the world that it was better to do business in South Carolina and manufacture in South Carolina. And they all opened up plants there. So that's why she kind of thinks it's good. So, the, you know, these things could actually be problematic for her. Uh, but, you know, on the on the flip side, she could serve as a bridge between the two wings if she could deal with some of these problems um, and work out some of these glitches. And, you, you know, you never know. Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, again, I I have some grave disappointments about Nikki, but I'm still a fan of hers, at least when I look at her from one angle. Um, but. You know, the main, the, I mean, we both wrote a lot about this back in the day, but the main reason why Trump won the primaries in 2016 was essentially a collective action problem where you had such a big field. He had a very sticky, loyal plurality for, you know, that. And then you had this, 
you know, what they call belling the cat problem, where it's in every mouse's interest that there be a bell put on the cat, but no individual mouse wants to volunteer for no. the duty. Right. No. And and so everybody who personally attacked Trump would lose, would be diminished by it and and lose. And so everyone, you know, Trump, uh, Cruz used Trump as a blocking tackle. And then when it dawned on people that it was that he's going to win unless he's taken out, it was kind of too late. I could see a scenario in which Pompeo, Cotton, Pence, um, you know, maybe less Pence, Pence, Pence's strategy would be a little bit like Nikki's as well, where you let a lot of people be unbelievable jackasses to each other and stay out of it and watch them get picked off one by one. And then the person who is the least objectionable to the most people and uh, who picks their fights a little more surgically could be left standing. And you could see how that kind of strategy could work for Nikki a little bit. You could see it for Pence. It's a little harder given the givens with Pence. Um, but for the rest of them, it seems like, including Chris Christie, who I think is going to run. Uh, Definitely wants to. Everybody thinks that their comparative advantage is going to be who can be the biggest combative jackass on the stage. And that's fine when there's one of them, but when everybody's like that, the person who stands out a little different might actually benefit more than what we would have expected from 2016. Well, I think the other lesson they should learn, and it doesn't mean it'll work, but I think it's a clear lesson uh, from 2016, which is, but it's also actually a lesson from 2020 if you watch the Democratic primary. You don't take out the front runner by, f by taking out other also-rans. Right? So, the, you know, in 2016, in part because of reasons you mentioned, you know, everybody tried to kill Rubio because Rubio, right? And, and while they were at it, Rubio, and Rubio tried, tried to, to kill, kill Jeb, right? Rubio <laughs> tried to kill Jeb. Jeb tried to kill Cruz and Rubio. I mean, it was like, you know, Christie, and it reminded me of that history of the world part one scene where they're playing chess and I'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're going to run in 2024 and Trump is running and you're going to run anyway, you want to show people you can fight. It may not work, but the way you tell people that you're ready to be president and want to be president is you take on Trump. Unless he's not a front runner, but obviously he'll be a front runner. You take him on and everybody should take him on. Because that at least will tell voters that they have as much moxie as Trump. You know, Trump, for all of his peccadilloes, in 2016, he's like, who's the biggest guy here? Where's the biggest name? Wait, you used to be president? The hell with you, too. I mean, he took on everybody, and to people, that was a president. And, you know, even in the Democratic primary in 2020, I mean, we're not talking about that, but, you know, unless you were trying to take out Joe Biden or whoever was the front runner at the time, you weren't doing what you were supposed to do to be president. So that's that should be the lesson. And even though they're, you know, at times it some things only, you know, in a, in a baseball game, you know, just because you pitched a one hitter and lost doesn't mean the problem was the pitching. I mean, there are just certain fundamental truths in campaigns. There are fundamentals. And if you're going to run against Trump, you go at it because he's going to go at you. And the idea that, well, I'll go after this other guy so I don't anger Trump's voters I mean, if they haven't learned by now <laughs> that that's recipe for failure, then they have no business running. All right. Dr. Drucker, it was lovely to have you on. We will have you back if you'll come. Jonah, I'll come back. This was fun. And uh, 
the book again is In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. David Drucker, thanks so much for being here. Jonah, thank you very much. All right. So David Drucker has left the studio, as it were. Um, good talking to him. And uh, I, I was telling him after we stopped recording that I feel bad. It just occurred to me. I mean, I've known David for a long time. Um, occurred to me only when I saw that he had a book coming out um, that he'd never been on the um, remnant before. There was no reason for it other than just sort of fell through the cracks. I, I like David a lot. He's a good guy. Um, so we will have him back unless there is some sort of tsunami of outrage from remnant listeners who say under no circumstances have him back on. We would probably still have him back on, but I would just have to like take it under more consideration because um, that's just how it works. Anyway, um, I had a wonderful time in California with my daughter. Um, I kind of am on a little on the depressed side being back. Um, but uh, on the other hand, it was nice to see the dogs. I posted a welcoming committee video on Twitter. It's the, my pinned tweet if you want to see how excited they were. And um, I'll talk more. Maybe I'll talk more about that stuff. Who knows? Um, at the end of the week. But beyond that, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Um, and uh, we got some great more episodes of The Remnant coming up. And if you can, you know, become a member of the Dispatch community. Um, you'd help us do all sorts of exciting new things on a faster schedule if you could, if you did. So with that, uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 